Welcome to the Daily Canon Podcast. Here to talk all things Arsenal is your host, Matthew Wade. Hello again, listeners, and welcome to another Daily Canon Weekly Podcast. It's a, uh, yeah, I think reasonably happy podcast this week as we beat Watford 1-0 at the Emirates in a game that, uh, well, certainly had lots of talking points, if not wasn't, even though it wasn't as quite as convincing a win as we might have originally hoped or indeed expected as the game went on. But joining me to talk about that and presumably some other things as well, as per usual, is Anita Sambol and Paul Williams. How are you both? Hello, hello. In a good mood. <laughs> In a good mood, despite the technology. So that's that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and and Paul, you were at the game yesterday, so uh, your voice is suffering. But how is your mental being, well being? <laughs> yeah, I'm. Yeah, I feel pretty good actually. It was really, uh, as I was saying to you, affair. It was quite a fun day yesterday. Um, I really enjoyed the game, despite the uh, tightness of the school line and the amount of things that went wrong um and that grumpier people might complain about but i'm not feeling very grumpy today so i'm not going to complain about them (laughs) well that's rather splendid um well uh, on the said subject um well uh first off we'll come to anita and just very quickly ask you what are your impressions of the game obviously the starting lineup was largely as expected except for the absence of thomas party uh and and the parachuting in of Ainsley Maitland-Niles. Um, yeah, yeah, how did you feel about that? How, and how was the experience of watching the game uh, where you were? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, as Paul said, the, the result seems a bit tight. But when you look at that, we actually had scored three, two, two more goals and had a missed penalty. Hmm. We did a lot to you know, make it a, a better result, but it, it wasn't meant, meant to be, as they say. Uh for the lineup, I think that it was uh, mentioned on this podcast some time ago that this might be the most chilled, laid back uh, midfield duo, Lockhorn <laughs> guy and Islamate Niles. <laughs> and they did really, really well. You basically didn't, we didn't miss party. I think Islamate Niles, obviously, as proven by the Man of the Match award from the Premier League official people <laughs> uh, I think that the, the match itself it's it kind of started to smell like one of those days when nothing will go our way yeah. and we would definitely lose this that kind of match last season even maybe in August perhaps uh, as well so this this one nil seems like a much bigger result <laughs> certainly Ben Foster was giving me memories of uh, Shea Given back in the day yeah. <laughs> <laughs> saving everything <laughs> Um, yeah. Okay. Well, what about you as a, as a quick summary, Paul? Before we delve into delve into detail. Yeah. Um, the team news, I think, pretty much uh, as expected. I I thought I'd read in the week that Partey maybe got injured in a training ground tackle um, with one yeah. of our youngsters. Yeah. Enola. Um, uh, yeah. And he was very angry about it, but it, it wasn't clear if he was going to be injured or if he was just a bit a bit of a knock you know it's right like, so we'll assess him ahead of the match kind of scenario yeah um so i mean <laughs> ainsley's the only replacement we've got for parte really at the moment isn't he so parachute the, the egyptian <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah yeah okay <laughs> um, but it was i mean, it, 
you know, I've been banging the Ainsley drum on this podcast for quite a long time, so I don't think I need to, I, I need to go on about how well I regard him, but it was really nice to see him given a start in central midfield and um, get on the ball and, 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 play, and play the football that we know he can play, he's capable of playing. Um, I thought he really, in the first half, was, was the, uh, the person driving us on from midfield. Um, and, you know, as a general impression of the game, I think it really, really had, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the first season at the Emirates where we either drew 1-0 or 1-3-0 for what seems like the first six months of the uh, first season at the Emirates. And it really had the feeling of one of those games that ended 1-0, 1-0 or might have ended 1-0 to Watford on a different day, as, as Anita said. Um, it was quite funny because we were in the block round the side, just level with the edge of the penalty area at the clock end. And everyone was standing up in that block. But I was standing next to this massive unit. And for the last 20 minutes of the game, it was like, oh, this, they're going to score. They're going to score. This is going to be horrible. And then the final whistle goes and he goes, oh, I knew they'd do it. bastard but um you know i think that guy was all of us to be honest um but it really was a game that arsenal basically dominated um and it just a little bit of um you know Alba didn't have his best day did he and (laughs) as, as you say ben foster in goal was um what it reminded me of was the 2011 um League Cup final, which we don't need to dwell on too no, long. We don't. But um, <laughs> ten years on, he's still causing us aggro. Well, I mean, we have to say that Watford's best defender on the day was our captain. Um, yeah, and 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 certainly early on, it looked like we might cut them to ribbons because they they didn't really know how to handle us. Um, but once they got the boost of that goal being disallowed and obviously quite rightly disallowed, it's one of those ones, as soon as you saw the replay went, hang on, isn't that? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then Rose came out the, after the match saying how it was an unfair win for, for Arsenal and how they defended so well. I mean, just as you say, Aubameyang was definitely their best defender. Yeah, well, that's part of, you know, let's, it's a bit of narrative construction. You know, Ranieri's got in there and he's got a team that is basically, uh, everyone thinks is going to go down and they they got a narrow defeat at Arsenal and he's got to try and, you know, describe this in a way that gives the most credit to his team to help build their confidence, which got an absolute battering early in the season. Um, and, uh, you know, Hey, if it means that we get to have Jamie Redknapp crying salty tears, Sky Sports, you know, inject that into my bloodstream, please, because uh, uh, a they missed a couple of details of that, which we'll get into. But b also, you know, how many times have we been fucked over from trying to trying to be nice? Uh, so <laughs> too many times, yeah. Yeah. Even Arteta pointed that out after the match. Well, I'm sure he did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know he did, but I was expecting. <laughs> Um, you know, we're not exactly the kings of the dark arts by any stretch of the imagination. We've got we've got very few shit house players as well, actually. Um, it's it's really, I mean, it's sad and uh, 
not not as much surprising that that's the main talking point point after the match in English media and uh, football public overall the that we didn't give the ball back to Watford. What about the old tactical falling that they did basically whole first half and all the I know I saw that Lee counted the number of fouls uh, Watford had and how many red yellow cards we did we get, we got and they got and it's just no one talks about that and not even the one the Danny Rose knockout for for the penalty I mean that was just that was, that was yeah like a flying clothesline of, of WWE style. <laughs> or, you know, Well, yeah, just just on that. I mean, I think Watford had 16,000 to our six, and yet we were the ones that came away with more yellow cards. And <laughs> I mean, the, the Alabama Yang yellow card, I mean, that was a booking. Um, but I, the the fouling that was going on at the game, I, I, James, my cousin that I went with yesterday, like we were saying to each other after about half an hour that just how niggly it, it nothing really happened for about half an hour and then all of a sudden it became niggly and then it carried on being niggly um but as you say Matthew I mean that tackle from calling it a tackle has been very generous um it literally was something out of WWE and how how he escaped a booking for that. And actually the referee took a while to give the penalty. Like every, <laughs> when that happened, everyone around me was like, that's a penalty, penalty, ref, what are you doing? And it's like, it took him five seconds to give it. And it's, I wonder if there's a bit of the referee couldn't quite believe what he saw. Did, did he think something else had actually, it was absolutely bizarre so for Danny Rose to be the one to come out and cry about how unfair it all was on Watford yesterday was spectacular um I just wanted to ask you two while we're talking about Danny Rose did he look as fat on the telly as he did <laughs> up close <laughs> for a professional footballer he's quite short and quite fat <laughs> Kind of kit isn't flattering for for all body types. <laughs> no, <laughs> but it was um, quite funny because obviously there's still a lot of Tottenham get battered everywhere they go, going around the ground. And in my section, it it became Danny gets murdered everywhere he goes. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Just a bit like I'm not sure we should be singing that or laughing at that, but yeah. um, no, maybe stay stay clear of that one. Um, <laughs> Particularly given, yeah, some of his issues in the past. But uh, just just on the, on the side on that, it was quite fun to to hear the West Ham's fans singing the Tom Get Battered song, s- celebrating their victory <laughs> over Liverpool. <laughs> they're not even here. <laughs> oh, they're so dislikable. But yeah, I mean, hey, there's no point going into great depth in it. We've talked on it a million times about the, the rotational fouling and the way that referees ref, referees very differently for the for the different sort of teams and, and that certain teams are given carte blanche to have a more physical approach rather than others uh, uh, every foul's a card um, I mean uh, from what from the stats I saw your estimate about Watford's fouling was very generous Paul um, um, and that's of course doesn't include ones that weren't given and ultimately You know, I've got no major problem with any of the Arsenal bookings, except for the fact that, again, as we've seen several times this season, either directly before or directly afterwards, an opposition player commits exactly the same offence and doesn't even get a talking to. Um, yeah. But, I mean, 
what can you say? We are a, we are playing in a league that has a disproportionate number of not very good referees, which is why English referees have gone from being some of the most respected in the world to basically, you know, not too many getting getting international representation. Um, the standard of refereeing in this country has declined despite the professionalism. That's something which is... Um, yeah, and, and it sometimes happens... Uh, sometimes happens uh, as... We partly saw in the in the second half, especially for 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 our only goal, that when in first half you have a referee giving something, giving nothing to one team and just letting the other team do whatever they want. Okay, listeners, well, uh, we'll leave that bit in uh, simply because some of you like Anita, and it would be quite nice for you to hear her voice. But unfortunately, her computer has died. Uh, and died a serious death, uh, not for the first time during our attempts to record this podcast. So uh, unfortunately, we won't be having Anita for the rest of it. So you just stuck with me and Paul. So we'll try and try and be both entertaining or informative or something. Anyway, so uh, yeah, just on the subject of of, of the rotational fouling, you know, we talked about the quality of the referees, and it is it is something that you mentioned specifically was about the ratio of fouls to cards and. I th- you know there was someone was keeping records of it a couple of t- you know in recent seasons and I think it was two seasons out of three uh, three or four seasons ago Arsenal had the the most cards to fewest fouls ratio in the league and yeah I remember and it was something like a quarter of some of the other teams you know Arsenal would other teams could foul four times as much to get the same amount of cards. And in this game, we had the opposition fouling five times as much to get one less card, although at least one of their players was kind enough to collect to himself in in stupidity central. Um, I mean, he's, a, I mean, you know, even the commentators were saying when he got his first cards going, oh, it's going to be very difficult for him now because he kind of can't resist going around kicking people. <laughs> um, and that's exactly as it, as it proved, as literally his second yellow card was just kicking someone. Is that what happened? I mean, it's down the other end of the ground for me. So, Well, I mean, it, it, it wasn't off the ball, but it basically was a challenge going in. I think it was Tavares and... Uh, you know, the reason Tavares really avoided some a more significant collision injury is by essentially doing a somersault over the guys, but he just right. hoofed him basically in a in a kind of you know, one could claim he was trying to win the ball, but he was trying to win the ball in a way that was guaranteed to do the opponent some damage, at least at least in terms of pain. And Watford, there was quite a bit of that from Watford. Uh, there weren't a team that I was aware of was being particularly. Uh, niggly or physical, but there was definitely a bit of leaving the foot in itis. I mean, we've, we're used to it from Danny Rose, the aforementioned, uh, and, and uh, I think he, I think he got five or six fouls before his first card alone. You know, um, but anyway, well, if he, if he need, did he even get booked in the end, I can't remember. But um, yes, no point banging on about referees. We're stuck with the same shit ones. It's the same every week. <laughs> Uh, there's only three or four of them that are really of, of, of top quality. I mean, at least the referee we had wasn't quite as bad as the one in the Everton Spurs game, who managed to have every major decision he given overturned by VAR. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> didn't, yeah. uh, didn't know that. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't have a good day at the office, shall we say? And did the whole <laughs> thing of like making a decision. The opposition players are in incensed and he's waving them away imperiously going no 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 and then someone whispers here um 
you might want to have another look at that. And every single time it was like, oh shit, <laughs> I have to completely reverse the decision. Um, but you know, it's a difficult job. And we'll move on from that because referees are far less interesting to talk about than the fact we are above Man United in the league. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's amazing to think had we had we not dropped points against Brighton and Palace, uh, we'd be second <laughs> after our starts of the season seems almost implausible. Um, but focusing specifically on this game, um, I mean, what did you make of the performance? Obviously, it was the game did become quite scrappy at times, particularly at the end of the first half. And, and I think who stood out for you from an Arsenal perspective? Um, I really enjoyed Sambi actually in midfield. I thought to to watch him cover the ground, he sort of he just seems very smooth. And I hadn't really picked that up watching him on the telly, although he has put in a couple of performances that I think maybe the Villa game he was particularly impressive in. Um but he, yeah, he just sort of glides across the pitch. It's, it's lovely to watch someone playing like that. As I said earlier, I thought Ainsley had a really good good game. Uh, Bukayo Saka, um, it's a shame Orba couldn't put that ball away uh, in the first five minutes and uh, knocked it on. Um, but uh, particularly in the second half I noticed it I guess more because he was on our side if at the other end but he seemed to have Danny Rose on toast Uh, Ben White and Gabriel at the back are getting I don't don't think Josh King really had a kick until the mix up at the end so I thought although as a team performance it didn't quite come together as you would like to see at home. I thought there were a lot of very good individual performances. Obviously, um, the man of the moment, who's got his England call up today. Um, yep. A lovely <laughs> job. I to ask questions about him not getting called up for England. He gets called up for England. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think what impressed me about him, again, this isn't new, but, um, you know, his defence of work rate, when he loses the ball, he is straight back in his opponent's face to, to try and win it back. I think he works so hard. Um, you know, mentioned last week about him getting starting to score more goals. Another Pires-esque uh, position to finish from as well. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think, you know, to score one from the edge of the box is... Um, I, I don't think he's scored too many like that yet. I know he's been unlucky with a few long-range efforts, but I mean... It was a, you know, we needed something special to beat Ben Foster yesterday, and uh, thankfully, the Smith provided it. And actually, you know, Tavares, I think, um, you know, we're all Kieran Tierney fans on this podcast, but I don't really see, I suspect Tierney, all things being equal, will probably come back into the team for the Liverpool game, and maybe that's the right thing to do. But, you know, if Nuno was to keep his place, I'd be quite happy with that as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd be very, I'd be keener to have uh, Tierney back for that game, particularly simply because I think Tavares has a capacity to switch off slightly defensively mm. when tracking off the ball runners, and of course, the off the ball runner in that part of the pitch, Liverpool is Mo Salah, who's <laughs> having yeah. quite a good season <laughs> so far. 
ripping yeah. everyone he plays a new asshole. <laughs> um, so apart uh, from West Ham, <laughs> apart from West Ham, yeah, yeah. Thank you, West Ham. By the way, Invincibles Day. Well, indeed, indeed, nice and early this year. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, for me, I'd I'd very much agree with your assessment. I mean, obviously, Ogbe had a day to forget. Uh, which was a shame because his work rate was excellent. It's just his mm. execution of everything was awful. <laughs> I mean, it was. I mean, really, Lacazette should be taking penalties ahead of him. Um, you know, uh, Oba's uh, as uh, a gentleman. I think it's a gentleman on Twitter has uh, been informing me, uh, informing me in recent times. Oba's penalty record is even worse than I thought it was, and it's only about seventy percent or something like that, uh, or maybe a little bit less than that now. Um, whereas, um, yeah, uh, and Lacazette's penalty record for Arsenal is excellent. I don't think he's missed one for Arsenal. Uh, uh, yeah, I think the only thing I'd say, in, in, given the circumstances of the penalty award on Sunday, perhaps it wasn't surprising that Uber took this one, bearing in mind that Lacazette probably had a few cobwebs to clear, having been a smackdown. Yeah. Um, but the penalty, I, it, I, I feel like all, but he didn't really make a decision on what to do no, with it. No. So he sort of hit it hard towards the goal. Yeah, which which for a finisher who's normally, you know, in open play, quite lethal and uh, is normally quite good at making up his mind. It was sort of odd in a way. Yeah, I think um, to quote uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan who as you know I'm a big admirer of it felt a bit like his head was in a jam jar yesterday which um, you know the uh, the touch on to Martin Erdegaard's goal bound shot yes. um, kind of epitomised that for me but you know again players have off days and like you say I mean he did and it is very apparent um particularly live, the amount of work he got through. Um, hmm. You can't fault him for that. And the other thing actually was watching the amount of times he looks to make a run and there's so kind of in the inside left channel, you know, he's available for a ball to go over the top or just to be played a little bit in front of him or whatever it might be. And the pass doesn't come. Hmm. And I think that, I don't know if, um, that's you know that's just maybe sometimes the player on the ball is not capable of making that pass, but it must be on some level a little frustrating, I would think. But equally for us, is you've got someone that's capable of making use of that space, and you know if you get him in on goal, he's you know he's quite likely to at least hit the target, isn't he? Um, why don't no, we I mean, play I think him we in more? Probably- you know, look at that and, and you sort of look at who's in the team and the team's functioning quite well at the moment, but um, the, there isn't a lot of what you'd call classic creativity in there. You know, there's mm. there's no Cesc Fabregas slide rule through balls from 40 yards from deep. And with Lacquer playing in the 10 role or sort of drawn strike or whatever you want to call it that he's doing at the moment, you know, he's, he's good at link and play in tight areas, but he's not a you know, wonderful vision execution guy. And Sam- Sambi played one fantastic through ball early in the match, um, but uh, which which ultimately uh, probably, the, I think it was Lacazette who received it, could have done better with. Um, 
that and neither him or Maitland Niles are your again you know your playmaker type midfielders even though they have a little bit of that to their game and Smith Rowe is more of a carrier penetration player rather than a, a through ball merchant and Saka has shown a bit of that but he's not at the peak of his form at the moment and with the, with the way that the team's set up at the moment Lacazette sorry Lacazette's positioning means that Aubameyang and Saka are slightly further apart than they have been when they have combined most effectively so I think there's just a, a little bit of a lack of natural people to to play that pass uh, I mean the hope is that the players in question will develop that more successfully yeah. Um, but yeah I mean I just wanted to sort of for my take on individual performances, particularly touch on Ainsley, who I thought played with a level of focus and simplicity that I think lends itself very well to his skill set because he managed to, he lent into his first touch, his athleticism and his ability to play simple passes of either foot. Um, and his, and he became a great pressing agent and, you know, three or four of the best chances we had in the game stemmed from him closing people down very, very quickly when they weren't expecting yeah. it. <laughs> uh, I felt early on he was a bit too much marooned into the sort of deep left channel that Xhaka operates in. But once he was sort of freed from that a bit more, I think it helped the team, gave Sambi a bit more company as well. And we pretty much owned, owned the midfield from that moment onwards, I thought. Um, I thought, yeah, again, ESR was, apart from the goal, was... Take just putting himself in positions which made the opposition scared, which is always fun. Um, and Tavares is, remains raw but very exciting. And of course, the thing he's got over Tierney, quite apart from size, is he, he's pretty comfy on his right foot. Yeah, you really don't see that many two-footed fullbacks. But I mean, he's not Joe Jao Cancelo, who you know, if you didn't if you didn't know you, he was a right back by you know by origin, you wouldn't know which footed he was, but. Um, I mean, it's still kind of if he can refine that rawness, it's very exciting uh, to the potential of what could could happen then. And of course, we've got a bit of that on the other side where Tommy S, who's not nearly as attacking or explosive, but he's really comfortable playing playing passes with his left foot as well. And it just means that we're we're so much hard, so much harder for opposition teams to bottle us up in corners, which always used to happen. Is you had the the Chambers are holding ball out to Bellerin, and then Bellerin has is two passing lanes cut off and he's, so he's got to go back to the centre-back who's got, who's, you know, again, not great at distribution. So he's only going to do the same, same thing back to Bellerin or back across to his partner. And, and and the rebuilding of our defensive unit has really changed that dynamic. So, you know, while there's still work to happen in midfield and further up the pitch, um, at least we're, we can get the ball into positions where we should be able to play from a lot more easily. And we saw a couple of times yesterday, Ben White doing his thing where he goes, I'm just going to, run past a couple of guys because they're not giving me any passing lanes and, and win free kicks and, you know. Well, the goal came from it. Well, indeed, yeah. yeah. I mean, that that was him sort of push pushing up to, to really high on, on his opposing player to impact the game. And, of course, uh, uh, a bit of a, 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 what do you call it? Uh, uh, well, did you, th- okay, John, did you think the challenge by Maitland-Niles on Saar before our goal was a foul? I think <laughs> I think there were probably people in the ground, and I would say I was one of them, that was a little bit surprised that VAR didn't have a look at that, the way the day had gone and possibly... Well, VAR did have a look at it, and just, but decided it was all right, apparently. Yeah, well, 
It's interesting because I don't think there were any Watford complaints about that challenge, to be honest. I think the referee just, um, to use a phrase my my friend Steve uses quite a lot, it's just football. Sometimes things like that happen. And uh, the ref obviously was happy that it was just football and we played on and luckily we scored from it. But yeah, quite interesting that the Watford complaints were more about us not actually giving the ball back when they'd put it out for their player that was injured who wasn't actually injured. And what was quite interesting was I read an article on Football 365 last night that basically commended Arsenal for not uh, not falling into Watford's trap and giving them the ball back when all they were trying to do was restart the game, effectively. Well, I mean, one thing, of course, that on that subject that certain people who've been feigning outrage have failed to mention is before we score the goal, uh, but but after the throw-in, Watford had the ball in possession. Uh, I think it was Kuchka had it, no one within 10 yards of him in possession. The fact is they gave the ball away and we scored from that. So even though though we didn't give them the ball back from the throw-in, ultimately there was a point in in, in that series of play where they had the ball in a similar sort of position to where they would have done had they had a throw-in and, and, and successfully moved the ball along. So it, it, it really doesn't work quite as well as... as it, this, this wasn't kind of... Uh, was it Carno against Sheffield United? Or, yeah, I mean... Or, or dare I say it, shithead Chris Sutton. Sutton. Uh, just doing anything to get a wind-up. Yeah, well, to be honest, being, being at the game, I think... In, in the moment of the goal being scored, I had, I didn't even remember that Watford had had the ball and put it out because one of their players was injured, even though he wasn't. So, I, you know, they still had time to defend and attack after that, didn't they? Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think the, maybe the legitimate complaint they could have, have is, was there a foul immediately before the goal? I mean, there were a few Watford players complaining that it was a foul immediately, in, but then they seemed to all rally around the fact that we didn't give the ball back from the throw-in. Um, I mean, it's one looking at, it's a, it's a real borderline one. You know, if the ref had given it as a free kick, I don't think I could have been complaining too much, but it wasn't like a super obvious foul either. It was one of those ones. It was a bit of a collision. I, I suspect the referee was probably influenced by the fact that as well as Sars, a very exciting player but does seem to like getting intimately acquainted with the turf um and a number of times in the game was falling over with very little contact um to almost the degree that it looked like he needed to change his studs or something you know um so there may have been a bit of cry wolf in there as well but yeah yeah, we sort, I, of, I, we sort of were slightly lucky to get the goal that won us the game that we totally deserve to win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think what you were just saying about sorry is about where I came out. I think you know there was there was um, a lot of skullduggery going on on that pitch yesterday, and I think may- maybe the referee, as much as he kind of let Watford get away with it a little bit. Maybe that was just something that's like, oh, I've, I've had enough of this. And it does happen with referees, doesn't it? I mean, I remember Patrick Vieira getting sent off many, many years ago against um, PSV Eindhoven. 
Mark Van Bommel had been um, fouling us all night and Vieira had been complaining about it all night. And guess who finished the match and guess who didn't, you know. Um, So so we do know referees can be affected by that. Um, It was quite the Watford fans were singing Who's the Gooner in the Black, (laughs) which is quite funny. Um, Of course, after they'd done their usual... Uh, nationwide popular rendition of same old Arsenal always cheating, which yeah. was under the circumstances was particularly funny. Um, well, they got a bit of same old Watford always cheating back as well. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Which which must have been done with a sense of irony because, like, we give a shit about Watford when we're <laughs> they're just the guys who live next door to our training ground. You know, that's 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 how Arsenal see them. Uh, you know, and that's not to be disparaging uh, because actually, you know, I think most Arsenal fans quite like Watford as a football club and don't have any beef there. But it's. Um, you know that we we don't have a well established loathing as they might be for a number of other potential candidates. Indeed. Um, so yeah, I mean, looking at the game itself, it's a real shame for Martin Odegaard because uh, you know Lacazette put in a shift as as usual, won the penalty, was pretty good. We had a lot of kind of nearly moments of link up. You know, um, ultimately he's not primarily a creative player, so we can't expect those attempts uh, at those kind of passes to always be perfect. Um, but his, his, his bite and his willingness to get involved in the physical tussle and particularly in that area of the pitch is, is really useful for us, particularly when he's not also having to be, then be the guy that gets into the box to try and get the end of things. Um, but we have to say when Odegaard came off the bench, he was good, wasn't he? He was, he was, I felt for him really. Cause I think, um, you know, as someone like Odegaard's, yeah, you can look at the way they played a game. And I think, um, you know, the Spurs game was a really good example of a game that he had a really positive influence on. But you wouldn't know that if you just looked at the facts of the match. Hmm. Um, so it was it was a nice move for him to um, get that shot on target. And it's just going in and, as I said, Uber with his head in a jam jar does a Nicholas Bentner. Um so, so I felt a little for him because he, you know, having signed for us, he must have been thinking, right, I'm going to be in the team, and he can't get in at the moment. And well, he he's won't getting get... a lot more minutes for us, and he would have got at Real Madrid. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But um, it was quite. He, he actually at the end of the game, um, apart from Aaron Ramsdale, who was proper giving it <laughs> at the end. Um, Erdegaard was the only Arsenal player that I actually saw come over and clap for a particular section of the crowd. Not that I need to be clapped, but... Um, <laughs> I demand when I go to football that the players applaud me for being... Yes, <laughs> me. Just, I don't care about anyone else. But, um, no, it was just quite interesting. He made sure he went round and... Um, but he, I think also... Uh, the way Arteta's using him, actually, is maybe quite clever at the moment. I mean, Lacazette, I mean, every time Lacazette tried to get on the ball yesterday, it felt like he got kicked, like literally every time. So to have a player like Erdegaard that you can bring on with 20, 25 minutes left once um, once the defence have been knackered out a little bit is probably very useful for Mikel Arteta. And, yeah, you know, as we, yeah. as, as we saw it, yesterday, it would have made the gap. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, no, it's, uh, there it goes. Joys of modern technology, uh, but the fact that he gives us a degree of control uh, 
particularly when we tend to tire late in matches, you know, our, our other young young players are having a great season so far, but they, you know, they don't all have 90 minutes or 95 minutes stamina in their bodies. And so you'd be able to, you know, bring in a player that can allow us to take the foot off the gas a little bit and play a little bit more intelligently, you know, and Lack is playing an extremely demanding role for us at the moment, but we all know that even when he's playing a less demanding role, he's not a 90-minute footballer more often than not. Mm. So, you know, being able to use him to go get him to go all out for an hour and then have someone who can give us more control after that is is, a, is an extremely useful thing for the manager. And as you say, it's a real shame because it would have been a goal with his right foot as well, which would have surprised everyone. Um, and the way he created the space and combined with his teammates, you know, it, it was good because he's been a bit off the boil the last, either of his last couple of starts, you know, playing in a slightly different role or coming off the bench and not making quite as much of an impact. But in this game, he, he really showed his value and, and sort of playing as if he's like, okay, you know, playing like someone who wants to be in the team rather than someone who's sulking that they're not in the team. Yeah. And we even saw the value of uh, the lesser spotted Mohamed Al Neni being brought on just to just to just at a point where we were losing a little bit of control and t- tiring a bit. Just to, you know, there was lots of people complaining on social media about El Neni coming on, and one, we all know why. Um, but I, I was inclined to uh, agree with the gentleman who said, much as much as he's not the player we want starting a game, El Neni's a really good player to bring on in this situation. Yeah. Because he'll run around a bit and he'll stand in the right place and he'll and he won't give the ball away cheaply if he gets it more often than not. And he's decent size and Watford were a big physical team. Um, and he could just sort of be something that got in the way of them whilst not just being someone who punts it away up the pitch. Um, and while he didn't do anything particularly interesting, he, you know, had a couple of moments where he used the ball intelligently and helped us get up the pitch. And that's what you needed at that stage. Um, even if we were doing a bit of corner flag hilarity in injury time with, with Martinelli coming on just just basically just to run with the ball up the pitch and get kicked <laughs> yeah kind of yeah yeah so there was one there was one point in the, in the middle of all that where I, I couldn't see the ball for about I don't know about 30 seconds because it was right in the corner at the North Bank end and um, yeah this guy next to me was massive. Craning, <laughs> <laughs> <Excuse me? laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a couple of nice bits of skill in there, but, um, you know, it, it, there's there's part of the, the old Invincible Zero fan that thinks, holding the ball in the quarter, corner flag, 1-0 at home against Watford in the 90th minute, you know, bit rum, but, you know, where are we mm. are? And at the moment, we, we're... We're a team that needs to get used to winning and having runs of winning, particularly with some bloody difficult games immediately on the horizon. And there's no point taking any risks. Yeah, I mean, I was saying to you off air, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how you felt about the game as a whole, but for me to like be in the ground and experience that game as a hit of football, it was... Um, I actually found it really enjoyable, even down to that bit of oh my god, we're going into the corners. Are we bit are we being a bit silly here? Um, you know, and the Invincibles weren't averse to doing it. Let, 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 let's be fair, but um, we all remember Pascal Seagan at left wing. Indeed, indeed. Um, so it just I, I think with us scoring the early goal and it being disallowed, and then we got the penalty just before half time, and it was always a game where. I think 
had Watford shown a bit more and managed to score first, I think Arsenal would have found it really difficult to uh, break them down because Watford weren't very interested in attacking generally yesterday. They, they, if it seemed like five at the back, quite deep. Ben Foster dealt with most we could throw at him. He made a really good save from Gabriel. Um, yeah, yeah. Just before half time, um, other decent ones as well. Yeah. So those those moments where we could have broken the game open and we didn't, and the longer it goes on, you're like, oh no. Um, um, you, you did get the feeling, as you sort of alluded to earlier, that if if Bamiang had taken the early chance rather than miscontrolling it to Saka. Um, that that we could have won by three or four goals comfortably, yeah, and possibly even more because I think Watford Watford are there for the taking. But with all these teams that are kind of near the bottom, scrappy, they've they've come to defend and try and catch you on the break. You know, the earlier you score, the easier your day is. Um, particularly, particularly as we're getting slightly better at sustaining a level of intensity for more than just ten minutes. <laughs> Which which we saw a bit too bit too much at the start of the season and maybe last season, um, and they they really didn't know how to contain us and, and sort of rode their luck a bit. Um, well, a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, so so what did you think? What was it an enjoyable game to watch? Uh, it was frustrating because yeah, for exactly that reason is we kept on finding ways to somehow not take a lead in the game that you felt that if we got a goal early enough it could be quite an easy day of things and, and quite a fun day rather than being a bit stressful um and it was it, yeah i sort of i still quite enjoyed it because i thought we played pretty well i thought i thought you know if if you'd had a, a, a peak abamyang you know really really switched on at the front of the team we would have won that game four or five nil um and I thought that the midfield played well, particularly after they made a bit of adjustments. Um, and I guess I particularly enjoyed the fact that some of the better performances came, came from players that I felt may, maybe needed a performance. Mm. Uh, either, either to just kind of get themselves more in the reckoning or continue cementing themselves. Because obviously, you know, as fans, as the manager, well... Smithrow and, uh, and Saka were, were all sold on. Bamiyang, yes, he has his ups and downs, but we know what he is and we're sold on him. You know, Thomas Partey was sold on him, even though he can sometimes have massive brain farts. Uh, but some of the newer players, we're, you know, we're very supportive, but we're still looking for that body of evidence, really. And and, and obviously people like Smith, uh, like uh, Ainsley coming in and, and Odegaard off the bench, you know, they make, get a real benefit from putting in that kind of performance. And certainly... I think Ainsley was the big winner from this game because he, he really showed how he can be useful for us by utilising a, a spits of his skill set that most of our other players just don't have, which is why we've always thought he could be useful in midfield, but we were always a bit worried about his moments of laxness, shall we say. Yeah. And there was none of that. And certainly Arteta, after the match, was commenting on, you know, essentially on his greater focus and application. Um, and I think that's... I think that's great because essentially we we all know there's a player there, but it's a player who, through a mixture of a lack of opportunity and also not quite having a mature enough approach, looked like they were going to leave the club for not very much money, 
having never really, really got a chance to give it a go, except as like cover at wing back, um, which obviously, while he still pro- probably will get plenty of games in those positions, if he can prove himself, prove that he can also be a very useful cover in midfield, that means he's going to get a lot more games, and it also means that he's a lot more useful to the squad as an asset, really. Um, particularly given where our positional needs are at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was interesting that Arteta, um, I haven't seen all of what Arteta said post-match yesterday, but he he did praise Ainsley quite effusively and um, given where we were a few months ago, um, yeah, it makes me feel a bit more optimistic about his future. I think there's still a school of thought that says that Ainsley may not be long for this Arsenal team. But, I mean, if he keeps getting picked and he keeps putting in performances like that, we'd be nuts to um, sell him. Yeah. Particularly and- with, with his versatility. Like you say, he, you know, how much would you pay for a player like Ainsley if he was on the market? And also people always talk about Arteta freezing people out or making his mind up about people and banishing them. But ultimately, him and Ainsley, they seem to have had friction on three or four occasions, but he keeps bringing him back in. Mm. And he keeps, you know, he, they could have bought another midfielder or, they could, or he could have played Elmeny ahead of them, you know, two or three times this season. And he's kind of, again, as we've seen before, he's, he's, he's sort of seen enough there. Obviously, he loves the player that Ainsley could be. I mean, that much is clear. Uh, but but there's there's clearly been some sort of reconciliation there, and and, and you know with how much that is one person coming towards the other, I don't we're not we're not, not in a position to to know that. But you know it's it's a bit different to what people have said about and you know regarding the Genduzi banishment, uh, who is still doing very well for Marseille, and uh, you know people's assumptions about Saliba, although recent rep- reports of that suggest that people's assumptions are not agreed with by the player himself. Um, so it's it's you know we we all love a good a nice redemption arc. So if this can be a, a turn into something of that, that'd be very useful uh, for the club, but also just for giving a bit of good feeling. And you know, speaking about good feeling, um, I want to sort of segue a little bit into: Did you see or have you heard anything about the Josh Cronkey interview? Uh, I've I've not no not I I know that he gave one and. Um... I know that he said they're in it for the long haul. They get offers for the club all the time. Um, but that's about as far as I've got with it. I mean, a lot of it's kind of meaningless corporate br- message bollocks. Mm. But I think it's still worth a watch if you, uh, for you and anyone else that hasn't seen it, just because, well, you know, when they confirm those headlines that you mentioned, but also he seems to really get that, even if he, even though they might not want to, they really have to get the fans on board. <laughs> you know, he, 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 I think he was protesting too much about his desire to do so. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's a clear recognition that uh, the team will be more successful if the fans are, are on side, but also for a business, it'll be more successful if the fans are on side. And also their lives as owners of the club will be nicer if the fans are on side. Although I was a bit disappointed when I saw, while while the 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 fan um, I can't remember, advisory group, whatever they're calling it, uh, essentially. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I was a little bit disappointed to see the the homogenous nature of that grouping. Uh, yes. It's like yeah, yes. Given given the Arsenal fan bases as it is, it could do with a slightly 
slightly a slight dash of colour or 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 femininity in there somewhere. But you know, these were people that were put forward by supporters groups, and and you know, they may just be people who are excellent at representing fans, or they may be being, being rewarded for their obsessive efforts in, in to, towards helping those supporters groups. So I'm not going to criticise individuals in, in any way, shape or form, but I do think I do think they need to look to diversify that group a little bit, sharpish, um, not just for optics, but also because uh, you want to make sure that you're hearing, hearing uh, voices that might have different opinions about things if you're trying to actually engage fans to help make decisions. Um, particularly when they're talking a lot about, you know, off the pitch stuff. Obviously, the fans, you know, they're not going to they're not going to listen to what the fans think about. We should buy or sell, <laughs> do one. <laughs> um, but yeah, also in, in the interview, he sort of it's it's worth watching partly because the things he's willing to say and the things he's not willing to say, uh, and uh, and also very much the kind of on brand message for about the European Super League is exactly as we all thought it was at the time, which is I mean, we don't know if it's really what we really, really want to do, but if someone's doing it, we're gonna fucking be part of it rather than sitting on the outside watching some other bastards be part of it. Um, which I think seemed to be the attitude of most of the Premier League teams wanting to be involved in it, because obviously we've got the the T V deal cash cow. Um so yeah. we're not kind of we're not hit acting out of a sense of immediate financial desperation, unlike some of the other European giants that, have, that were kind of driving the bus on that one. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's worth a watch, but without expecting it to be exciting or revelatory, shall we say. <laughs> uh, really? Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. I did read Amy Lawrence's piece in The Athletic uh, last week, which um, was talking about how Mikel Arteta's really tried to reconnect the club and um, it, uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but they were basically saying that it felt like something had been lost from, from the training ground and the club in the years since Wenger and possibly even towards the end of Wenger's time at Arsenal um, and how Arteta has gone about. Um, I think he was sitting and having lunch with Josh Kroenke and Vinay and various other people, but the club, you know, when Arteta talks about unity and he's talked about it quite a lot recently, isn't he? Mm, mm. It does actually seem to be true that there is a unity of purpose at Arsenal. And of course, these things always come from the top. Um, but one of the details in the piece, and as you know, I was more than more than fed up with Arsene Wenger by the time he left the club. But Arteta actually got in touch with Arsene and um asked him if he could provide a message which they could put on the training ground wall. Um, and so there's this massive image of Wenger smiling with his left hand in the air and uh, inspirational quote about grasping the greatness that's in front of you. Or so. I can't remember the exact quote, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it's something like that. And I have to say that just reading that, it, it did make me smile. And I think... I think particularly when we moved to the Emirates, you know, the stadium was very sterile and, mm. you know, it took a while to arsenalise it. And now it looks like, uh, yeah, every time I go to the stadium and, you know, that arsenalisation process began a long time ago, it's still visually so arresting. And so, you know, when you go to the stadium, you know where you're going. This is Arsenal. Yeah, they got it club. in the end, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> they did. 
But, you know, to do that at the training ground, which I think hitherto has been also quite a sterile environment, it's, I don't, I don't want to say that it's inspirational. I don't know, but it sounds like it is. Um, I think it's also, it's, it's also a deeper question about how one, how, how one utilises your, you know, your past or your heritage or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, the fact is, is Wenger is a massive figure. But one couldn't really reference him in that way when he was there or when he'd just walked out the door. No. And, but once, you know, it's how do you how do you evoke without without it being just a, a, an act of kind of a, like a like a footballing seance. Sure, but I, I, so I think they could have still arsenalized the training ground without necessarily making it about Wenger. I think it was just that one detail that even yeah. e- even I as a bit of a Wenger sceptic by the end, as I'm sure many of us were, um, actually read that bit and thought, oh, actually, But you've got to really remember lovely. that most of the players, Arsenal, Arsene Wenger, synonymous. They, they have, unless they've done some, you know, research off their own back, they don't know anything about Arsenal pre-Arsene Wenger. I don't necessarily think, think that's a problem. I, no, so, I don't think it's a problem uh, either, but it, it, it's, it's, I just mean like the arsenalization, if you want to call it that, is so inherently linked to Wenger because for the people who are actually using the training ground, they got, you know, they might know George Graham is. They don't fucking know. You know, they weren't, they weren't yeah, alive. But, no, no, <laughs> and I, I understand that. I just, I'm not, I'm not sure how much it matters. I always remember, um, Don Howe on the Arsenal History DVD. This is proper old person diversion now, so apologies <laughs> to younger apologies listeners. Apologies to younger please, listeners. <laughs> please don't switch off. But on the Arsenal History DVD, which um, came out in 2003, annoyingly just before the greatest ever league season in our history, um, Don Howe talked about how... Um, I think it was the 71 side, or possibly, yeah... They, they used to complain about all the pictures that were up of the 1930s team and like it was a, it was too big a pressure on the, the that particular group of players mm. felt the pressure of trying to emulate what had been done before and Don Howe's attitude was what we want to do is get new pictures up of you lot yeah, yeah <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Um, and I just I think. I suspect Wenger created quite a, I I keep saying sterile, maybe that's being unfair, but like a a tranquil, calm environment at the training ground, almost like a holiday spa. Um, Actually, it's like, you know, the training ground is a place of work. And, you know, we all read stories and heard stories about the Invincibles used to kick shit out of each other in training sessions. So when game time came around, they were ready to go. And games were going to be easier at the weekend because this group of players was a special group of players. And if Martin Keown can handle Dennis Bergkamp, then he doesn't have to worry about Louis Saha or whoever. Yeah, but, but they're also... That still happened within this Zen training environment. You know, the environment was still very Zen. Uh, my point is just really that to, if you want to give a, sen- a greater sense of the club to an, to an environment, uh, 
you know, Wenger is that sense of the club for most of the players. For, yeah, for maybe some of the homegrown ones, they've got a bit more than that because of because of whatever they've been taught in the time. But for most of the players, but, but then you can't kind of do, you can't like make the shrine to Wenger when he's just been fired. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, maybe I should have just agreed with you 10 minutes ago. <laughs> Listeners, let us know what you think, uh, or don't. Up to you. Um, but anyway, I mean that does sort of nicely segue onto something else that's been worth talking about in the last week, which is of course Wenger's doing interviews to promote the film about him, and, yes. uh, and he's been saying that he should have left long before he did, and po- possibly even in two thousand and seven, um, when when David Dean left. Um, I mean, I just sort of. I don't know if you'd read any of the interviews or seen any of the coverage of that, but I wanted to know what your thoughts were about that. You know, he seemed to very much, I think there is still, I think on his side, there is still perhaps a little bit of ill feeling, shall we say, about the way things ended, which was totally understandable given how nasty it got. Um, But equally, it's understandable that it had to end. Yeah, I it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we're nearly four years for coming out, or three, it's three and a half years, isn't it, since mm. um, since he got the bullet. And um, funnily enough, I read the Guardian interview at the weekend, but my mate Luke texted me earlier today and said, see, even Wenger thinks he should have left before he left, because um, <laughs> Luke had been banging that particular drum for quite a long time. Um, well, the day we lost eight two at Old Trafford, Luke maintains it to to this day. Um, but not everyone felt that way, and I think there was. I, I do remember being on the way back from work in two thousand and seven, and hearing the news about David Dean. And I think there probably was a real fear about Arsene going at that particular moment you know mm. the two of them were very much a partnership <laughs> so to lose David Dean and then lose Wenger and we were still in the first year at the Emirates or maybe it just maybe yeah, it's yeah, supposed yeah. to um, so it was a scary prospect to be without Arsene Wenger back then and I think I'm, I'm glad he stayed whatever happened years later I think Arsenal needed him to stay at that time and he still had work to do and you know in 2000 we nearly won the title in 2008 so yeah it, and, I, and, the, I, and the, I think I think there's that bit element of you know we look back at the second half or the second two thirds even of, of, of Wenger Ball at Arsenal and get the sense of underachievement and disappointment um, but you know he was really close on, on, a, on a few occasions to doing something special again you know in, in 2008 we were, we were the best team in the country by a distance until all our attacking players apart from Adebayor got kicked the fuck out by the teams and got injured and by the end of the season it was Adebayor and anyone else that could still fucking walk playing up front yeah. uh, and so we ran out of steam you know but uh, until I mean the Eduardo injury was a massive psychological blow um, and the team really struggled to overcome that and um, but even before then, we'd already lost Rosicki, Van Persie. Hleb would miss a lot of games due to like terrible foul on. I remember the Hleb one. It was a game against Aston Villa where they just basically took it in terms to kick him until eventually they they got him carried off virtually, and yeah. by another very forgiving referee. Ho ho ho. Um, and then, of course, even all those years later, after lots more ups and downs, you know, 
a little a little bit of uh, if uh, if Olivier Giroud's shooting boots hadn't completely vanished after Christmas, Arsenal would have won the league the year Leicester did and pissed in the fairy tale. But the fact is, is you know, it was the, it was it was the thing that the thing that made the Wenger situation so frustrating by the end is is that he was always close enough that you had hope. It wasn't like he'd it wasn't like he'd fucking you know completely spanned it and we were sitting in mid table. Then, then, then getting rid of him is an easy decision. But it was the fact that we spent how many years did we all spend more thinking? Oh, if we just had one more player in this position, it was decent. Yeah, and it was like, yeah, you know, it was one year we didn't have enough strikers, and it was like, oh, we didn't have enough midfielders, oh, we didn't have enough defenders. But there was always like one or two players missing, and so that became initially an enticing, which made you want to keep him. But then it became very frustrating when you realised he does this every fucking year. <laughs> <laughs> Buys one player too few. Yeah, I think. Oh, did we finish third? When did we, we finish third? And we only signed Petr Cech in the close season. Yeah. Following that. And I just thought that for me was a time where I was like, really, Arsene? You know, because with a little bit more of a push. You know, that Arsenal team had enough players to do something, but they it just needed something adding to it. And the best we could do was go and get Chelsea's, you know, past it goalkeeper, and he was past it. And, you know, into the bargain, then we lost Wojciech Chesney. But I suppose Chesney was never going to play for Wenger again, whatever had happened. Um, but I... You know, I will always be grateful to Arsene Wenger for giving me some of the greatest footballing memories of my life. Um, but I think for him to still be hurt three and a half years later kind of says quite a lot about him, in a way. Um, I get that he essentially devoted, it's not his life, but a large portion of his life to one football club and the way that it all ended hurt him. But it, his end didn't come in a vacuum. No, um, and it wasn't an, and, a huge. It was the, the only thing surprising about it was the timing. Yeah, um, you know, my my friend Harry always says, like he to, to this day he maintains that if it wasn't for Arsenal fan TV, Wenger may very still well be at the club. Um, I Which I've is got my words in the wrong order there. But. Utter bollocks, I have to say. <laughs> But I just, I, you know, I think it was killed by I, apathy from the stands, not by Arsenal fans. Well, and I think I think that's right. But I think Harry's point is kind of that the discourse got really poisoned, and you know, people uh, like myself, like you, will have written pieces. But I don't think, any, and even on this podcast, we were never abusive towards Arsene because we respected what he'd done. Whereas Arsenal fan TV sort of changed the game a little bit. But I. I, I basically agree with you and there's a little bit of the, the back of my brain going, why are we even having this conversation at the moment? But, um, you know, the antipathy towards Wenger came when we stopped winning games. It wasn't that the antipathy stopped us winning, but then we end up in this yeah, vicious circle. Like, yeah, but like you, I, I think, you know, the minute, you know, that the, white cannon on the telly every time you watch the game on the telly for the last 
sort of 18 months, two years of Wenger's reign, that cannon became more and more visible with each home game. And that's what, what did for him. Um, and it was time for a change. He had a, he had a great run, 22 years. I don't even think it was the white cannon. I, th- I, I genuinely believe that what did for Wenger is the fact a bit like a bit like what happened more dramatically with the end of Umay Emery. It was like people just kind of gave up, and like there was less people in the ground. There was less, just like it was. You know, people were more pissed off. But it, it kind of he kind of got sacked after people had gone through the apex of being angry. People mm. had just gone to the point of going, "Oh, what's the fucking point anymore?" And we'll turn up and he'll, we'll have a decent team. It'll be quite nice football and we'll fuck it at the end of the season like we always do. We won't be close. And, it, and, and, the, and the empty seats in the ground were slowly getting more and more each week. And, yeah. and, it, and suddenly there was like slightly more and more tickets being on the ticket exchange and things like that. And, you know, people who, people who run big businesses don't miss that shit. They recognise that. Yeah, yeah, of course. I'm just going back to the Cronkies. One of the things that I think is also vaguely interesting in the interview is um, Cronky Jr. Uh, talks about how there are other sports franchises, they do things a bit more similar to what they've now done with this project, which is um, basically trying to grow younger squads together. Um, And so it's sort of, and that was something I was wondering why it hadn't really happened before being a bit familiar as I am certainly with their ice hockey team and also their Colorado Rapids um, soccer team. Um, why would in, instead kept trying to cling on to the, the ghost of the, of European football with aging past their best veterans um, for a number of years. And, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to get behind what we're doing now um, emotionally because we all like to see young players develop and it's exciting but also intellectually because you're like well at least this is a strategy that makes sense because even if it doesn't work you might get some resale value and you'll end up kind of at least at least it could get better rather than only having diminishing returns which is what happens when you sign older players um, and I, so I suppose there's not really much else to talk about immediately because we've got an international break coming up so there's no point expressing our fears about going to Anfield at this point in time. Um, <laughs> but uh, one thing I did want to talk about is, did, did you hear about what happened in the under-23s game at the weekend? The improbable uh, comeback from 3-0 down in injury time. Not just 3-0 down, 3-0 down, having used all their subs, then the goalkeeper got injured, letting in the third goal, which he wouldn't have let in if had he not been injured. And so their centre forward, Beareth, had to go in goal. Oh wow! And, and then we still, and then uh, and was in goal for about tw- twenty minutes, I think it was, or whatever. And we still scored three goals in injury time. I no, I did not know the full details of that, yeah. but wow! Uh, and and you know, great for uh, you know, Amari Hutchinson came off the bench and I think got a goal and two assists. So great for him, a goal and assist for Balogun and and the aforementioned. Crocker of party, Akinola got a goal and an assist, I think, or, or Golan was involved in, uh, heavily involved in a pre-assist, sorry. Um, so, you know, that was quite cool. Um, the under-18s, I think, got another win, if I remember rightly. Uh, so, you know, they're, 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 they're doing pretty well at the youth levels. And, of course, the ladies keep swatting aside anyone that comes within range, really. Arsenal women 4-0 at the weekend uh, against West Ham. Um, who Lisa Evans is currently on loan at, but injured. 
the the Evans Miedemar derby derby, um, but uh, yeah, and there's there's a lovely photo that came out of one of the opposition players trying to give it large by making a nil nil single with that. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> it's like, oh, don't be doing that when you're playing someone really really good and there's half a game left. <laughs> that, that generally doesn't end very well. Whoever. No. Um, so yeah, I mean that they're they're. Domestically, at least they're a juggernaut. I mean, they got taught a bit of a lesson by Barcelona in the Champions League. But hey, who hasn't had that happen to them at some stage over the last couple of decades? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, let me think. Yeah. Uh, speaking of whom, uh, Xavi has returned in, in Arteta style, uh, only more so to take over as manager of Barcelona after they finally sacked Ronald Koeman, who they didn't want in the first place. <laughs> Ronald Koeman, who had a remarkably average managerial record to get such a big job. Uh, at least Javi doesn't really have a managerial record. <laughs> yeah, I, I, there was a little exchange on Twitter that I saw earlier that I quite liked. Um, I can't remember who it was, but they there was a uh, video of Javi clapping and uh, <laughs> this person said, oh, he seems to clap, clap like Arteta. Is, is that a Catalan thing? And Arsblog goes, Arteta's Basque. <laughs> or Arteta's a Basque, whatever. Yeah, but um, yeah, I felt a bit for Santi Cazorla because he's out in uh, Qatar playing for his mate, and now his mate's gone off to Barcelona. I'm sure Santi's having a lovely time out there. Yeah, well, he's he's one player of the year out there, didn't he? And he's basically, even though he can't run anymore, can still be far better than anyone else in that league. And uh, and he's probably getting paid an absolute fortune to have a bit of a jolly rate, basically. Um, so yeah, and uh, I mean, we still hold the hope, don't we, that some that somehow he'll turn up in some vague capacity at this club uh, to help out with some sort of coaching, if only if only because it's the only thing that will stop him getting fat as he gets older. <laughs> <laughs> no, because it used to be the big joke, wasn't it, around the players, is that he'll just like when he retires, he'll just get fat, eat lots of food, and just relax and have a lovely time. Oh, I, you could totally see it with Santi and. But, you know, he'd still be the best player at a Legends match if he turned up, you oh, know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Um, but it, was, um, it just reminded me, actually, um, one thing about the game yesterday was the the silence for Remembrance Day was immaculate. And listening to the last post, I, I found myself really emotional. I think... Um, it, it, was, it was almost like it was a bit much for it to be my first league game at the Arsenal in nearly three years. And, um, you know, I'm putting myself at the centre of rem- uh, the moment of remembrance, which is a terrible thing to do. Um, <laughs> at least I've acknowledged it. <laughs> Maybe cut that bit out. Uh, <laughs> to be honest, no, that, wasn't, was... that wasn't how I interpreted your description of it. But if you want to beat oh. yourself up, be, feel free to be my guest. <laughs> Yeah, I I guess obviously thinking about my granddad, but um, yeah, um, I was going to say something else about Xavi, but it's gone. It's gone. Uh, If he's half as good as a coach as he was a midfielder, then Barcelona will sort their shit out pretty damn quickly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, potentially. Uh, Just going into some, just before we finally wrap up, a bit of loan news. Hector Bellerin scored an own goal to consign his, his beloved Real Betis to a 2-0 home victory to Sevilla. Later well on done, Hector. Uh, yeah, so, and, and as a number of people commented, you know, even though he's unspectacular, there are times when you see Tommy Asu do things defensively, just thinking, 
God, we've been fucked if that was Hector in that situation. <laughs> <laughs> Even though we all love Hector and wish him all the best. Um, uh, elsewhere on loan, uh, yeah, uh, Miguel Aziz finally got some minutes for Portsmouth, which is good for his development. And obviously Saliba and Gunduzi are still doing very well in France. And Harry Clark is tearing it up in Scotland, playing as a marauding right-back, having previously been a centre-half. But on the downside, uh, uh, Danny Ballard uh, may have got a mild concussion playing for Fulham. So, oh, swings and roundabouts. Anyway, that's pretty much it for this week for us, uh, I think. Uh, so thank you, listeners, if you got with us this far. It's a bit scattergun this week after we moved on from the Watford game. We're a bit there here, there and everywhere, but such sometimes is the nature of existence. So embrace <laughs> it. Um, anyway, thank you, Paul, uh, as always, for joining me. Pleasure. Thanks to Anita briefly from the very start of this. And uh, yeah, of course, listeners, if you've got any thing you want to be in touch about, uh, if you want to shout at me uh, or, or theoretically engage in debate over social media, then uh, obviously links to that are in the description of this. And uh, you can also go to this at Daily Cannon on Twitter. And uh, we'll speak to you, well, during the international break where hopefully, you know, some of our players are at a nice time, no one have got injured and we can resume shitting ourselves about going to Anfield. All right, cheerio, everyone. Bye.